0: Welcome to Breaking Brave. I'm your host, Marilyn Barefoot. From broken bones and shredded muscle to Olympic glory, Silken Lauman's story is one of true bravery, perseverance, and the triumph of the human spirit. Four-time Olympic champion, Silken is brutally honest and truly inspirational about her battles with a narcissistic mother, depression, and how she used the lessons she learned on her healing journey, to write her memoir, Unsinkable, and to also found her charity, the Unsinkable Youth Advisory Council, which is a council that uses storytelling to help bridge the gap between those who are struggling and taking steps forward toward mental well-being. We have intentionally timed the release of this episode with Unsinkable Youth's Youth led grief event, which takes place online Sunday, January the 29th at 7 p.m. Please welcome the greatest female rower ever produced by Canada and an incredibly brave human being, Silken Lauman. Silken, I feel like I know you. I, of course, don't, but I met you once and that was at the Stony Lake Market up in the Coarthus. Wow. It yeah. was my husband actually who said, Hey, mayor, that's Silken Lauman. So welcome to Breaking Brave. I would love to talk about an awful lot of things, but I'm gonna start with Unsinkable, your memoir that was published in 2014. Is that okay?
1: Absolutely.
0: So, what led you to write this incredible book that I could not put down?
1: Oh, thank you, Marilyn, and and happy to be on your show. And um, thanks for reminding us of that Stony Lake connection. Uh, My uh, husband's family has been at Stony Lake for like over 50 years. It's a really special place to them. And it is just a special place in um, Ontario. And uh, I think a lot of people have made some great memories there. In terms of What led me to writing my book? You know, I I spent a lot of time as a public person uh, in Canada and telling my story, um, certainly the story of overcoming my accident, uh, the kind of tenacity and determination that was required to do that and where it came from. But as I really began to understand the deeper aspects of my own story and, and how my childhood experiences really affected who I was as a person—good, the good and the bad and the ugly—I um, I almost started to feel inauthentic sharing that more superficial story as I as I started to explore those deeper levels, and it it almost felt like I couldn't do anything else in my life until this story came out. And I don't know if that was the aspect of being a public person. So many people knowing so much about me and then not knowing this really (laughs) other (laughs) big part of who I was as a person. But I I came to that place of, yeah, the book just needed to be written. And it's... um, it's a story of growing up in Mississauga, Ontario, um, growing up you know, in a middle-class family uh, with a mom who was super creative and vibrant and beautiful, but also very unpredictable. Um, you never really knew what mom I was coming home to day to day. And so I had to tell that, that bigger story. And um, for a while, I wasn't even sure whether I was going to publish it. You know, like I was I was writing that story in the privacy of my living room, so to speak, you know, <laughs> but I did. And and it was probably the scariest thing I've ever done.
0: How long did it take you to write the book, Silken?
1: It took me a long time. Um, I, it was a real start and stop process. And um, eventually I just, you know, uh, got help on it because not only was it really hard to orchestrate and think out how the story would be structured, but it was also I would get stuck on those really hard emotional parts. And so um, I worked with Sylvia Fraser, um, who helped me so much uh, in you know, pushing through those hard bits, and and then just obvious things like things that I'd uh, were so integrated in in my life that I didn't really think to explain them. And she was really good at saying, "Oh, you've got to take people through the story." So she was of enormous assistance in in, in writing Unsinkable, and and ult- ultimately the reason actually did come to fruition.
0: It's absolutely fabulous. And so, thank you for sharing that story, your life story, with the world. For the world out there that hasn't had the pleasure of reading your memoir, what were the aspects of your childhood that, if you will, imprinted in you that therefore drove you to become who you are, so competitive? Mm -hmm. All those aspects, Mm -hmm. as you said, good, bad, and ugly, that made you who you are? Maybe you could just give us some headlines yeah. there for people who haven't had a chance to read the book, as I said.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think Marilyn, like for all any of us, it's hard to unpack our our life and really hone in on the things that made us who we are. But I think there were some things that stand out. I mean, growing up in a house with a lot of love and a lot of expression, uh, definitely. Um, made me the the vibrant, adventurous person that I am today, like having that all around me. And that was a really positive part of being a kid at my house was there was always that creativity. There was always that sense of adventure. Uh, I think that the instability, the inability of my mom, who had an undiagnosed mental illness, but was really unable to connect emotionally to the needs of her kids, uh, that made me incredibly independent And my sense of having to do my life on my own and um, create my own identity was very strong at a very early age. And I think that that was really important later on when I started to pursue sport in my own path, that sense of independence, self-reliance, I think resiliency too. You know, it wasn't all a fairy tale. And so that aspect of you know being a kid and things being hard emotionally and 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 unstable I think in some ways made me a lot more resilient to the uh the ups and downs of life you know I don't think we we always want to develop resilience in our kids so we don't necessarily want to create a dysfunctional home in order to do it but you know I think that there's there's some benefits to everything that's difficult uh in our life and by the grace of God um I had the inner strength and that just, you know, because we can always unpack it and say like, how much of our personality, of our resilience is kind of God given, (laughs) you know, just sort of, we don't really know why some kids are more resilient than others. Sometimes in the the same family, kids will go very different directions. It's so complex. So it's even hard, like, you know, even at my age, after all the self-reflection I've done, you know, I couldn't clearly say, where my character traits came from. But I know some of them came from my parents, some of them came from my childhood, some of them came from environments that I still have yet to understand.
0: Thank you. Full disclosure, I saw my mom in your mom. You and I beyond Stony Lake seem to have had a very similar upbringing. My mom, still alive, has been Diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. So now we do have some form of understanding of what that is. And an earlier episode of Breaking Brave, I interviewed Danu Morgan, who's in Ireland, and she's the founder of Daughters of Narcissistic Mothers, and she's been a tremendous help for me. But the 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 upside of this, the bravery of this, is that I too got counseling still, you have to get to a point where you unpack it. Mm -hmm. It isn't something you can just keep on pressing down and pressing down and pressing down in terms of that Pandora's box. So the reason for bringing all that Mm -hmm. up was to congratulate you because it's hard, brave work.
1: Yeah, thank you, Marilyn. And I'm I'm sorry to hear that uh, you also had a difficult um, time because I think being with a narcissist, um, being with, it's it's, it's very difficult to be um, a child and not have your emotional needs met at all. (laughs) And uh, a lot of things, you know, a lot of things happen. We turn things inward. And I I personally think counseling is a lifelong project. I think that uh, why wouldn't we have a coach um, help us on our emotional journey the same way that we'd have a trainer help us on our physical journey. You know, there's, there's so much complexity and particularly if you've had a particularly difficult childhood. So, you know, to me, it's like, that's where the, that's where the nectar of life is too, you know, is in understanding how each of us have suffered and how we've been vulnerable and, the journey of life is deepened by these experiences that we have the courage to go into. And I think empathy, um, I've gained so much empathy through my own suffering, through finally acknowledging that because for so many years, I was just like, you know, pushing through life and uh, going and accomplishing and doing. And then I hit this moment in my life Um, where I could no longer just push. And that was the the moment um, where I, you know, realized with two little kids that I had so much rage and I had no idea where this rage was coming from. And I had this flash of like, I am going to mess up my kids. And it was so, so clear. And that was really the moment I made the decision to go, and do some digging. Cause I really related to what you said with Pandora's box, because there's a sense that I, I actually remember saying that to my counselor saying like, if, if I'm going to open this box, you better be here to help me, you know, sort it all out. Um, most people, Marilyn have so much fear about really going deep, you know, They have have so much fear about opening up that past. It's going to mean that I'm going to be navel gazing for the rest of my life. It's going to mean, you know, the stuff that's going to come out, I'm not going to be able to deal with. But what we don't realize is that the, first of all, the energy we're using to suppress, to stuff down, to deny is, is huge. And when we finally have that courage to go there I mean, that energy is released and given back to us, right? What, what an amazing gift. And I remember saying that I might have even said in the book, like this sense of when I started to really do that work, that sense of energy and, and uh, aliveness that came back to me that I didn't even know
0: had been slowly disappearing. 100% the energy as well as the coping behaviors that go with it. In my case, it was booze. In some people's cases, it's an eating disorder. In other people's cases, it's drugs. It's whatever you have to do to mask it, to not deal with it, to not look at it. I used to say to my counselor, my Pandora's box is in the basement because I could like visually, <laughs> visually kind of see this box in the basement like rattling, shaking, like with little monster things, trying to poke their Mm -hmm. hands up through the top of the box. Mm -hmm. And I was afraid of it. And she told me at the time, she said, Marilyn, do you know that about 85% of the people who start the work with me quit because they just can't go there, but have confidence that your emotions, your brain, your psyche will only give you what you can handle. And I thought, how does it know what I can handle? And she said, just it won't overwhelm you. It'll honestly unpack Pandora's box one item at a time so you won't get to an overwhelmed state. Amazing.
1: Yeah, it is amazing. And it's
0: it's so sad that, you know, like you said,
1: 85% of people quit because if you can just keep going, there's such a wonderful reward and and that's a depth of living that is greater and more wonderful and sometimes more terrible but mostly more wonderful than you know you could have ever imagined
0: absolutely i would like to connect unsinkable the book the memoir to unsinkable youth council and ask you to give a bit of an explanation as to The work that the Unsinkable Youth Council is doing, what it is, just Mm -hmm. so the world is aware, and so the world can check it out and support if they so choose.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah. So fairly early on in my book tour for Unsinkable, it really struck me how many people had the same story, you know? Uh, Maybe not the exact same story, maybe not the exact same mom, but like... but that so many people had a story about their life, about what they had experienced that was really inspiring. And so often during my book tour, because I would hear people's stories. I mean, people have told me all sorts of stuff about themselves. And I think, wow, like more people should hear this story because this person's been through hell and they've come back. Now, not only they've come back, they've used their pain to help so many other people. And that's really where the 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 idea of creating initially a website called Unsinkable was, um, it began, was like, let's publish some of these stories because they're amazing and they inspire me. Because whatever you're suffering through, somebody's suffering and working through something even more difficult and, and things that are unimaginable. And when you hear somebody who has had addiction and has lost everything. When you read a story of somebody who's lost a child and has come back and found meaning and drive and hope again, I I mean, it just puts everything that you yourself are experiencing into some sort of perspective. And so I wanted to create that. In some way. And it started off as a website. Then we did a national show during COVID uh, on CTV um, called Unsinkable Youth. It's where we um, launched Unsinkable Youth. And it was really the voices of young people during the pandemic. And Was a show all about hope and help and 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 hearing them. Because I don't think in the in the early stages of the pandemic, we weren't hearing young people's voices. We weren't hearing what they were going through, trying being disconnected from their peers, which was so incredibly devastating for vulnerable youth. And so that's how it all started. And then pretty soon we realized that we had a community. We had a community because, and um, we were we were first of all we were creating safe curated content uh, on on our social channels around mental health, and that uh, if if kids were going to be on you line anyhow, why not create something that was uplifting that could give hope that would direct young people to resources five out of five Canadian kids are online right so like let's meet them where they are Uh, because I think there's a ton of good information there out there about mental health there's there's probably a lot of really great stories out there about mental health but they're often um, they're often not reaching the kids who need to hear and read these stories and interact uh, with these stories so Uh, That's really how the Youth Council came about was that, like, let's connect young people who are leaders in their own way in the mental health space who may be struggling still and want to share with one another and connect with one another. So the councils meet. um, They often are moving forward each other's advocacy work. I mean, It's interesting. I mean, one of the young people on our council, you know, has had, had a very difficult story and, you know, he seeks the help of a psychiatrist. He seeks the help of a counselor, but both his mother and him have said that the council has actually been the most helpful thing because one of the things that really helps with our mental health is assisting others, is sharing with others. And so I think the council does that. It gives the young people not only... The ability to share with one another, but actually the ability to assist other people through the projects that they might design for Unsinkable. We're launching a grief project in um, January and it's, it's the young people who've asked for it. They're creating it. We're assisting them. We're, we're uplifting them. And so that's really what we seek to do. I mean, if I was to say, what do we, you know, seek most to do at Unsinkable? It's to give hope and help in some way. And sometimes that's through social channels, just the right post at the right time. Um, sometimes it's through young people or adults, because it's both, right? Um, connecting with one another and going, oh, you know, I see myself in that person. And and then having that ability to connect. Sometimes it's connecting people to a resource, you know, when it could be something as obvious as kids' health phone, or it could be something more directed towards a specific community. And, uh You know, the work that we do, I mean, we've been alive for three years. We've got our charitable status this year, and we're marching on. It's hard work. You know, we've been so lucky that uh, we've had two major Canadian sponsors, uh, companies, Sun Life and uh, Good Life Fitness. Both come on board, Sun Life Financial and Good Life Fitness, and that's made a huge difference. But um, sometimes sometimes it's a slog, but what keeps me motivated is – those conversations with young people and just knowing that often when you need help, you're, you're not quite ready to get it, right? You, you can't quite see yourself. And, and and I can really relate to this because when I was experiencing the most mental health, um, more, most mental ill health, I didn't really understand it as mental health. I actually just thought something was wrong with me. So we kind of want to move people along their journey. So whether it's that first awareness of like, oh, this might be actually not just me being a bad person or selfish or narcissistic or whatever you want to say. This actually might be about like my chemistry and my background and like, you know, and so it takes the shame away.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And your timing. Your timing couldn't be better. I mean, from the standpoint of everything that we are now learning about, isolation and learning Mm -hmm. online Mm -hmm. and the pandemic and what it did to young kids in a social, emotional, mental health situation, you arrived with your Unsinkable Youth Council at exactly the right time in terms of them having to have needing, even if they don't recognize needing, a support system.
1: Yeah. I mean... When I first imagined unsinkable, I imagined it really only for adults. And I was reluctant to get into that youth space because I felt like, well, I'm not a youth. But I mean, I am (laughs) surrounded by young people and I have four kids and, you know, they're all in their uh, early 20s. So, you know, it's and I kind of consider youth, especially during the pandemic. I mean, youth can be well into their 20s and still fall under that unsinkable youth Umbrella, because the pandemic has slowed down people's young people's development in some ways, because they haven't had those uh, opportunities to be socializing and to be having their first job and all the things that help us kind of grow up as 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 people. And, and people grow up at different rates depending on on their background. So it was really important for us not to put like a fixed age um, on what youth actually meant. But I was reluctant. But the need, Marilyn, is so huge. And when I began to see, and I maybe it's been this convergence of the fact that these phones and the internet and everything has come into our life in such a big way in our kids' life right from the time they were born now. And that has led to a lot of social isolation. All the studies are showing that, right? The kids feel more and more isolated than they ever have before. So, you know, we have to start pushing against this and not just pushing against the phone, but making um, our social spaces friendly and safe we have a counselor that um, helps curate our, our content that was really that was really important so i just felt like in a way it's like something i didn't really want to do but there's so much need and i see the gaps like you just have to have a young person in your life who's struggling to realize oh it's actually not that easy it's not that easy to get the right counselor to find the right counselor I mean, the number of people who've asked me like oh i need a counselor in this area and me struggling to like find the right person. And um, I know that uh, the kids help phone has set up, you know, basically a referral, uh, you know, network where you can find good counselors in um, different areas, but you know, that was a real struggle. And then, like I said, so many people are not quite ready to go to counseling or, or they go to counseling once a week, but it's not enough. They want to connect with other people with lived experience. So in, in my own journey, I've found it incredibly important to go to counseling. It's really really been fi- foundational for me um, i've obviously I, I often um, really wanted to negate the idea or turn away from the idea of medication, but for me, medication has been really important so you know a learning there for me, but also listening to people's stories. I think I've been my a storyteller my whole life, and I learn through listening. To stories, and when I think about like the most fundamental shifts in my life and the decisions that I've made, it's always started with hearing somebody's story. You know, becoming an Olympic athlete came from watching somebody's story, Nadia Comaneci in 1976 in the Olympics, and being like inspired right by this person that I saw on television. And for whatever crazy reason, because it was kind of wild, I was already five eleven. I wasn't going to be a gymnast. <laughs> So the power of story has also been, it's its in the DNA of our organization. I think it's something that we do really well. And so it just made sense that story could be a way of moving people along their journey.
0: That gives me a bridge to a lot of different places, but it gives me a bridge to you were 17 and you were an awesome runner but your sister Danielle, was your sister Danielle first to step into rowing and then you followed her? Or did you guys kind of step in hand in hand and, and actually discovered this sport together?
1: No, she was she was my older sister. She was my uh my inspiration. Um she went into rowing, I think, thinking it was canoeing in Algonquin Park, honestly. There was, you know, that was a, way back when, actually, women were just entering. 76 was the first Olympics that um, women were part of, and my sister started in 79. So it was pretty new sport uh, amongst women. And I think they took one look at my sister, who was tall and long-limbed, and they were like, you will be a rower. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so she uh, she loved it. Um, got quite good at it really quickly, and her and her coach, uh, Fred Luke um, from Mississauga. Fred was a photographer with the Mississauga News, and every time he saw me running at one of the, you know, because he'd take photographs for the local paper, he'd say to me, "You gotta, t- you gotta try a real sport," which would just make me more angry. And I was so determined not to row, but life had a different plan for me. And one summer when I was injured, the summer of 1982. I decided to row, you know, with the encouragement of Fred and and Danielle. And really, I never looked back. And Fred uh, was just the greatest coach and leader at that time that I possibly could have had. And actually, we had multiple Olympic medalists and world champions that came out of this tiny little club in Mississauga, thanks to, you know, his love of the sport and love for young people.
0: And... Silken, did you just know when you stepped in the boat and had your first experience that this is exactly where you belong? It was like love at first stroke. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, it really was. I mean, I spent a lot of time in the river (laughs) because of my enthusiasm. Um, I would pull too hard and, you know, you know, as I I was all passion and muscle and you know, wanting to, you know, do it right. And then I'd end up jumping <laughs> in the boat and having to crawl back into it. Uh, but I I I did love it right from the very beginning and I was obsessed with it. Like I would dream about it. Uh I I I would practice my rowing stroke in my dreams and hit the wall, you know, beside my bed as I was rowing in my sleep.
0: You and your sister Danielle rode together for a little while, but then she stepped away from the sport slash retired. And obviously you went on. We rode together in 84. She was uh, almost four years
1: my senior. And I think, and we we won a bronze medal together at the 84 Olympics in in Los Angeles. And it's like a wonderful experience to have. uh, I mean, we fought like cats and dogs, but we also had this incredible um, experience together. And I think that was something that, we can always look upon as really special. I think for my sister, she she's an incredible technician, um, very talented athlete, uh, but she really wanted to move on with her life. She wanted to go to law school. She wanted to, you know, she, it was something that she loved doing for a time. And uh, I think that my obsession with it ran so much more deep. <laughs> And uh, I figured if I kept rowing, eventually I would start winning. Um, So I just, you know, kept kept at it. And she went on and became a lawyer, and you know, had a very different life. And you know, rowing was a small chapter of a very full life. And for me, it was a bigger chapter. And I I rowed for thirteen years internationally, which is a long time.
0: And as you say. It wasn't her thing for a long, long period of time. But as you say, what a great bonding moment to be winning together for f- f- in the time that you were able to row together. Mike Spracklin. As Mike Spa- Spracklin was your coach when you put your hand up and said, I'd like to train with the men. Am I correct with that fact, Silken? But you absolutely, he, um, he was a men's coach
1: and he had come over from coaching in Britain where he actually coached um, Sir Stephen Redgrave, who um, is the the uh, five-time gold medalist in five consecutive Olympic games and was knighted um, in England by the Queen. Um, so, you know, he had a great track record when he came to Canada and I didn't particularly get on with um, the women's coach. And so I just made that decision that he was the guy that was going to help me win And it turned out he, he was, and I was so grateful that he took me on. And we had these amazing years together, uh, both in 92 and 96, where, you know, he gave me that gift, which was the ability to discover my talents fully. Wow. And, you know, I can look at my rowing career and really say a no that I couldn't have done anything else. Like I, it was, it's my own journey. It's not that it was, it was, it, it was perfect or I didn't have crises in, in that time, but he had so much, um, talent in bringing out our abilities and, and our focus and giving us that right training program. And I'm so, so grateful to him and that, that, uh, we
0: were able to work together
1: for those years.
0: It sounds in your, in your book, so looking like he saw you. It was like Mm -hmm. he could see inside you, he could see your talent, he could see what drove you. And I think by the sound of things, the ability perhaps to break it down into things that were kind of manageable pieces that then you fused together to really discover what what you were capable of.
1: Yeah, actually, that's a great way of describing it. In a way, he demystified it. You know, this idea of like winning and becoming a world champion was like almost mythical. Like, somehow it would just happen, and if you worked hard enough or tried hard enough, and the key really broke it down, we we need to do this on the training program. We need to do this technically. We need to do this with the um, with your race experience, and so. Yeah, it took it out of the mythical and made it very practical, a pragmatic approach to winning.
0: Because we have an international audience, which I love and I'm so proud of, perhaps we can talk about the, briefly, the elephant in the boat, meaning the horrific accident um, when you were training on Essen Lake in Germany just before 1992 Barcelona Olympics. Because certainly the Canadians listening, everybody in Canada knows you and knows your story, but the other countries around the world may not. So maybe you could just give us a synopsis of what happened that day.
1: For sure. In 1992, I was going into the Olympic Games, which was in Barcelona as the world champion, I won the world championships in 1991. And I was racing in this place called Essen, Germany, a beautiful little town in Germany, uh, a well known race. And it was a world, it was part of the World Cup um, race that year. And it was going to be the last time that I competed before that kind of upcoming Olympic Games. And anyhow, I got, got up into the Worm area and there was no, there were no proper buoys separating boats going one direction to boats going the other. Incredibly important because in rowing, we're going backwards and we're going backwards at high speeds. And it was, it was really chaotic. Um, I had never seen anything like that before at an international regatta. And um, so I kind of went past the starting line and um, tried to find a clear space to, you know, do some power strokes, which is essential before racing. And was collided um, with a men's pair actually from Germany, and their boat was going pretty fast, and collided into the side of my boat, and my boat shattered um, the wood wooden splashboard, and drove you know two hundred pieces of wood into my into my right leg, and shredded muscle tendon ligament shattered the ankle. I was taken to the trauma center in Germany, and I mean the doctor there and said that. The Olympics were over, like, it just wasn't going to be possible. Um, the damage was so extensive. And this was 10 weeks before the Olympic Games. I mean, up until that point, you can imagine how focused athletes get before the an Olympic Games. I mean, it's like your world you you develop tunnel vision, you know, your world starts off so big and then gets smaller and smaller as you get closer to the games. So by that point, 10 weeks before the games, I mean, it was the first thing I thought about in the morning was, you know, the Olympics and, you know, the, the clock. And so the idea that I would accept the doctor's words, you're not going to the Olympics was actually unthinkable because I was on my path. Like I was the world champion. I had a great year training. I had a great coach. I had like a great team. I was going to the Olympics. And so like, I literally couldn't let it go. Like I, I just, it was inconceivable to me to let it go. And I think the idea and the accent and, and the damage in my leg was so depressing that I needed something to do. <laughs> I needed something that I could take action on. And so like I got a TheraBand, you know, one of those like stretchy, plastic bands and I tied it to the end of my bed and I'm like pulling on this. And I I, I told my boyfriend at the time who became my husband, like lean against me. And then I pushed him away. And like, then I, like I was just trying anything to keep moving while spending 10 days in the hospital in Germany and then another 11 days in Victoria.
0: Mike Sprocklin was part of this journey in a big way, wasn't he? It was interesting because... I think when I actually was in the
1: hospital, it was overwhelming to him. Like it was it was very emotional for him. Once I got out of the hospital and I said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to the Olympics. <laughs> uh, I think he just moved into kind of action mode, you know, like, okay, this is what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to adapt your boat and we're going to get in the boat and you're going to, you know. And the fact that he just, The moment I showed up, he treated me like I was going to the Olympics and he and I were really close. And I think he was traumatized by the accident and emotionally devastated, but he just got big time into tunnel vision mode. And I was big time into tunnel vision mode. And we just, I mean, it was magical, the stuff that started happening, you know? So when I went on the plane, to go to Germany, I mean to um, to France, to the training camp before the 92 Olympics, I was still in a wheelchair. I was using a wheelchair through the airport, you know, you, only using crutches occasionally because I had had circulation damage. And every time I would spend any length of time standing up, my leg would go bright purple. So I still had to be seated most of the time. Luckily, rowing is a seated sport. <laughs> so... So, and then I, I went to Europe with the men's team was, was there and I was boarding the plane with them and I was using crutches as well, like to get, you know, to maneuver around a little bit. And I think it like, must've been wild for the other guys to, that I was training with like, okay, like she's on crutches and you know, we were having to drive her. Like it was only like a 200 meter walk, but I had to get driven to get into the boat but then once I was on the water, it was like I was capable. And it, again, it's just these magical and unique situation where rowing is mostly your upper thighs and back and arms, and my the damage was in my lower right leg. So that the most painful thing was the break. But you know, breaks heal in about six weeks, and then the muscle damage and everything was. It didn't affect in a profound way my stroke, but nothing took away from the fact that I was still spent three weeks in the hospital. So I'd lost a ton of fitness, but also my body was healing this huge wound on my lower right leg that maybe I wasn't using the muscles that much in the lower right leg, but it was still like a big open wound that had just had a newly um, put on skin graft on it. That sounds really gross.
0: <laughs> Not at all. How did it feel for you, Silken, when this horrific accident, journey, hospitalization, trying to push as hard as you physically and emotionally can, you're now in a skull. You're in the act. You, just to be back there at the training camp in France, it just what's going through your head at this point? I think I've always been good in
1: high-pressure situations. You know, I know how to just get down and do what needs to be done. I can get through. I mean, I have that confidence, right, that I can get through anything. And I don't want to get through every, anything. I don't want the worst to happen in my life. But I know I, I can get through it. And And that was hugely helpful during my recovery. But then I was in the boat. And... There would be this, there was like this disconnect, this kind of weird, almost like magic because I'm looking at my leg and I've got band- this huge bandit and this cast and, you know, it's still, I mean, my wounds are still seeping, literally. And, and, and then I'm out there rowing and rowing pretty well. And so on the one hand, I had to think of myself as capable of winning think of myself as i mean rowing requires aggression and strength and capability and mental tenacity right all of these things and on the other hand i had this huge devastating injury and i was trying to be kind to my wound and kind to myself and gentle and and so i i got into this very like locked in mindset of like I don't want to say ignoring the pain, but I think I was like, I think it was just like Olympics, 10 weeks, nine weeks, eight weeks, seven weeks, you know, just like, I just got to get to that finish line.
0: And the day of the race, maybe just give us a couple of highlights there as to be honest. I think uh, when I was reading about it and watching some video on it, I almost felt sorry for the women who placed in gold and silver because You just brought the house down. So maybe tell our audience (laughs) what, what it was like, like, how, how did it go? How did it go for those that don't know? I
1: I mean, being at the Olympics was so, and we get this with uh, athletes where they become the star because of this, their story and every, every camera's following them. And I was definitely the star of that 92 Olympics and, you know, on, on, the starting gates of, you know, which is a small dock. My dock was literally sinking because of all the journalists with their big cameras that were on it. And like, they had to keep telling the journalists to move back because the poor person that was holding my boat was getting (laughs) soaking wet. Um, (laughs) There was, there was just this feeling, Marilyn, of magic. You know, I said that word a few times, but something really special was happening and I kind of knew it. And I knew that was what was happening and going to the Olympics didn't make sense. This injury was so devastating that that, that there was so much going on in my body. But yet here I was at the Olympics, walking with a cane, competing with the best in the world. And all of it was happening simultaneously. So at this, you know, while my body was healing and all the tension was on me, and I was just trying to, you know, conserve my energy. But on the other hand, I was out there competing with the best in the world with all that aggressive, focused energy that is needed to um, to to win a medal. And so the magic wasn't lost on me. I mean, sometimes I would be just overwhelmed with the beauty of it you know, that, that this was actually happening. And I remember the night before the final, just like lying underneath this tree and all the journalists were finally gone and the, everybody had left the race site. And I was there and I just laid down on the earth and sobbed. And I partially, it was just nerves coming out as the regatta was starting. And partially it was just like that, like the emotional amount of containment I had to have in order to be poised in this high pressure, you know, every moment mattered kind of environment. And it was like releasing all of that. When I got on the race course, I was an athlete. I was an Olympic athlete competing for a medal. And that mindset just sort of switched in that person that I knew how to be because I trained being that person for so many years switched on the day of the final. I was, I was in the zone. I was focused. I was in those turning gates and I was just like every other athlete. I didn't think about my leg for those first 30, 40 strokes, you know, just shot out, did what I'm trained to do. I wasn't leading at the, f- the first quarter of the, the race, but I was in the pack and, and then it's a 2000 meter race crossing a thousand meter mark, I remember feeling really exhausted. And this is kind of this was usually the strong point in my race is that middle part I just get into this really killer rhythm and like just you know good go go so hard but I had rhythm and I could really tick that boat along. And and this time at the thousand meter mark I was like oh, oh, oh <laughs> I don't know if I could do this. And and just that feeling of like, and that, that, that self-talk of like, just a little bit more, just a little bit more and almost deal-making that happens when if you get in trouble in a race. And so I did, I started making deals with myself, like, and then 500 meters to go, which is about two minutes. You could really start hearing the crowd and, and they were screaming and there was a boat that was on the water because there's the stands were just completely full that was also full of Canadian fans and everybody was just screaming I could just hear the din of it I couldn't hear I mean in the recordings now I can hear people's voices yelling my name but I like I could just hear the din and somehow that really lifted me and I and that last 40 strokes I just I still don't remember it yeah I really don't re- I don't remember that last half of the race and I crossed the finish line and I did not know that I'd won a bronze medal for several seconds because, you know, I was so disorientated that, that, that without any oxygen going to my brain, the last 10 strokes. But when I saw the scoreboard and it, and it said, you know, bronze, Canada, silken, I just felt so much pride and relief. And it's a quiet feeling,
0: you know, of like, ah. Oh, I did that. I get chills just thinking or imagining that moment for you. And the sound of those people who believed in you, who wanted this to happen, it must have been Mm -hmm. spectacular. I mean, as you said, literally just took you to another place to get you over the finish line. Yeah, I really think so. And I think, you
1: know, I believe in energy and um, the entire country, was awake screaming at their television sets. And I, I, I think I felt that I don't, I can't explain how I moved into a, a bronze medal position and, you know, was able to be Anne Martin who came in fourth, who's a really good sprinter, That I was able to stay ahead of her. Like all of those things, they were just, they were just a gift.
0: So can, what does bravery mean to you? Just shoot from your gut first thing that comes into your mind, because we're breaking brave, what does bravery mean to you? It's not the absence of fear. I think it's doing the things
1: that you're afraid of because you know they're the right things to do, knowing and doing it and being brave, facing your demons, whether you know it's the stuff you're afraid of doing, whether it's the stuff you're afraid of looking at, whatever it is that like you do it anyway. And so like, sometimes we can, we can be brave and not know that we're being brave because, you know, we're so motivated. Like I was at the Olympics. I was so motivated, but being brave is often about following your gut. It's about following your instincts, even when others might be saying, no, don't go in that direction or, you know, why are you doing that? that's that's brave. And I think living our, living our life bravely, we get confused. We think, oh, there's brave people and there's not brave people. We all have the ability to be brave and courageous. And it's not the absence of fear. I have a lot of fear. I'm surprised I've done so many things in my life because I've had so much fear that has, has been really difficult to work through. And sometimes it's kind of paralyzed me for a while. Um, I'm not that person who's confident all the time and, you know, I am old now, I'm getting older. So I got more confidence because I've had, I've had more stuff that I've worked through and I, I like, you know, you get more confidence as you get older, hopefully. Uh, but boy, in my thirties and forties, I still struggled so much despite a lot of evidence that I had
0: success. On the surface. There is the success, but what's going on with the iceberg under the surface, right, is what the world didn't, yeah. didn't know, couldn't grasp, and appreciate. Thank you for that.
1: Yeah. And I think it's just, just an important point, Marilyn. It's like all the accolades in the world, all the medals, the fame, the money. I mean, don't we see this in Hollywood? You know, if you don't love what's going on underneath, if you don't find that peace within yourself, it doesn't matter. And so that's where our culture we need to make a shift in really understanding. It's, it's what's within. Everything else is just noise. It doesn't matter what you look like, what you have, you know, the pile of accomplishments that you've created. Not, none of that's going to make you feel whole. It's, it's by going inside. That, that's, where the, that's where the wholeness exists.
0: <laughs> Amazing and thank you. Yes. So, Silken, now what does life look like now for you? What are you working on Mm -hmm. other than your unsinkable youth council project, which is phenomenal? And in a second, I'll ask you to do all the shout outs for how do we support you? How do we connect with you there? But, you yourself, what are you doing now? Yeah, thank you. Well, I'm writing a book now, I'm writing another book. Uh, and
1: yeah, it's it's on um mind, body soul uh, it's it's my experience in um spirituality and wholeness and my journey to becoming who I am today, um, you know, in a way becoming human, right because I think having been a public person and, um you be, you can become kind of two dimensional how people see you right they see you based on what you have done you know quite a long time ago <laughs> and like like my journey to really find out who i am and what matters to me and has has involved yoga and meditation and journaling and spirituality and physic course physical you know activity And deepening of relationships and counseling and all of these things. And so I've decided to put it all together in a book. And I've really been enjoying writing that. I I was writing it through COVID. Uh, So that's one of the projects that I've been really immersed in. And then Unsinkable, you know, to uh, develop a not-for-profit, which is now a charity in this country, is not an easy thing, particularly in times where so many corporations are cutting back because of the pandemic. Um, and the way that we give um, has changed a lot in this country. Um, you know, Corporations are looking more for kind of sponsorships and not as much charitable giving. So it's been a tough environment to start a not-for-profit in. Uh, however, uh, you know the work leads us, and the the mission. Uh, you know the work needs to get done, so we're we're finding ways. And um, there's a lot of work required in expanding. You know, having another youth counselor because we have these wonderful youth councils going, um, but we also have uh, very active social channels going. So all of that takes up a lot of time. And then I'm also at the stage in my life where I'm giving. More time just to being, you know. Um, It's not all rush, rush, twenty four seven. I think I have, I had an addiction to productivity. I think I do more before noon than most people do all day on most days, and I've really had to, um, or wanted to, loosen that grip of all these habits and routines, and make more space for just being and enjoying. So. I can often be found on my mountain bike for hours in an afternoon. You know, I've got a a routine of working out and doing yoga where I'm not rushing. So I've got a lot more space in my life these last few years for me. Uh, I've got four young adult children, and I still call them my children because, you know, they're still... They're almost there, but they feel like some of them are not quite launched, And, and that takes time and energy. Um, I have a herd of animals, uh, two dogs and um, cats and that um, follow me everywhere. And yeah, so life is good. And um, being less attached to accomplishing and more being in the minute, more being open to what shows up, whatever challenge, whatever need, I'm still very much engaged in life and wanting to create, I think, um, you know, plans at launching the book. I'd like to get, get into doing a podcast, uh, but I want to give myself some time to just enjoy as well.
0: That is awesome and wise words and and good for you. Now, you were a motivational speaker or are, or are you just taking on... Sometimes speaking engagements, or have you kind of shut that down? Or I I would say it has to be a
1: compelling reason now. Okay, I love speaking and I'm very good at it, and I truly love it. It always requires travel, Mm -hmm. and I think one of the things that the pandemic really put in focus for me was that I didn't, I no longer wanted to spend that much time moving from place to place, and so. I, I think you know Marilyn. When I look at my life, there's been these always be, been these transitional years in between things, and I recognize that I kind of am in a transition again. And I think that eventually I will develop something where people come to me, and whether that's like a wellness center, whether that's you know a, a weekend workshop or something. But I no longer want to be the person getting on the plane going somewhere. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I totally relate. So Silken as a, as a last hurrah before we wrap up, how can the world or how would you recommend or how would you like the world to connect with you, support you, find out more about the unsinkable youth councils that you have going? Mm-hmm. This is the shout out social however you want to direct people who are listening, who are interested.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, well, if you're listening now and you um, think I'd love to read one of these stories, the best place to read the stories is to get on our website, weareunsinkable.com. Uh, weareunsinkable.com. And, re- and read some stories and do some exploring. Look at what our resources is. Find out a little bit about us. I love our website. It's just uh, been newly launched. Uh, we've got a video on there that really tells our story. Um, and also, if you are thinking of donating or maybe connecting us to, um, you know, something that might be of interest to us. That's a good place to start. On our social channels, Unsinkable Stories is our uh, Instagram handle. Um, We are very active on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. So you can find us there as well. Uh, But I think the the website's a good place to start because it gives you a really good overview about what we're all about. We are unsinkable.com.
0: Any idea when your next book's coming out? I don't want to pressure you, but just maybe. <laughs> uh, it'll, be, it'll be definitely in the
1: next couple of years. Okay. Um, I think I'll, I'll spend the rest of um, the 2023 spring, and then there's a bigger lead time on books than there has been historically. So um, hopefully by 2024, it'll be out in the marketplace.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much, Silken. I so appreciate this and the world – will so appreciate this when they have the opportunity of hearing you.
1: Thank you, Marilyn. And thank you for starting Breaking Brave and shining a spotlight on all these um, wonderful stories and people. Because we all need to be uplifted and we need to see how much light there is out in the world.
0: Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Brave. For updates between episodes, please visit my website, MarilynBarefoot.com. You can also find me at Marilyn Barefoot. That's it for today. See you next time.